If you started turning to the book of Titus, um, please go to the book of Luke. As I've been uh, sharing the word with you, you here for the last month or so, we've been studying the book of Titus together, but we're going to focus this week and next on uh, some texts of scripture related to what we are thinking about and celebrating at this time of year. And the thought I would like us to consider today has to do with understanding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Many people know about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but I think we would probably agree that a lot of people don't understand it. Here on Wednesday nights, we've been having some discussions on evangelism in our uh, meetings over here in the chapel as we study the word and pray together and think especially about people that we know that we can connect with who are far from God. I think a good thought to have in your mind today is maybe those names, those faces, people that you know who are far from God and the question, do they understand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Probably some of them know about it, but do they truly understand it? And is there a way to help them to come to that understanding? Uh, As I've started spending a little bit more time, and Faith and I spending a little more time right around the church neighborhood here, we have met a few different people. Uh, As Faith and I came over on Friday to pick up some tables and chairs for the ladies' brunch yesterday, uh, we came into the parking area behind the church, and as we got out of our vehicle, realized there was a person under the, uh, the landing of the outside stairway. And we engaged her in conversation. Her name is Fifi. And uh, she's homeless, and uh, she had found a little bit of shelter there. And we tried to engage with her and see if there were any ways that we could help her. And uh, actually, like a couple of Wednesdays ago, um, there was a man that was snowing and the wind was blowing. I believe it was after a Wednesday night service here. And a uh, similar situation, cold and hungry, and uh, we tried to help him as well a little bit, have a spiritual conversation with him. Um, As I arrived yesterday uh, for the work day with the men, got here a little bit early and uh, parked in our parking lot and walked toward the the front of the building and there was a police car parked by the curb and I just walked over and trying to be friendly and uh, a couple of men sitting in there and one of them in uniform and they rolled down their window and we just said hello and I said, yeah, I'm the new interim pastor here at Northridge and he said, oh, he said, I went to high school there. And I guess back maybe in the 80s or somewhere in there, he said, uh, there was a school here. Is that right? There was a school. Okay. So he said he had gone to school here. We just talked for a minute. And uh, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder, you know, these people I'm talking about, do they may know about the crucifixion of Christ. Do they understand it? Uh, It was a little early, so I walked over to the slowdown coffee shop across the street and uh, got a half regular, half decaf cup of coffee because I'd already had my major dose of caffeine for the day. Didn't want to have too much. And as I was standing there waiting for my my coffee, I looked around and there are people sitting there. And this is a busy place on a Saturday morning between the coffee shop and the bakery. And uh, I think I saw two Bibles, uh, two different tables where somebody had a Bible out. So that's interesting, isn't it? So maybe there is uh, there some understanding of who Jesus is and why he came. But that's a lot of why we're here, isn't it? That's why you and I, why God has placed us where we live and the people that we engage with day to day. And that's why God has placed this church in this location 
to shine that light and spread that news and help people understand the crucifixion of Christ and all that that means for us. And if you look with me at Luke chapter 18, this this happens very close uh, prior to the time when Jesus did enter Jerusalem, and you can read about that in, in Luke chapter 19. But here in Luke chapter 18, Jesus knows that the closest individuals to him, the 12, those disciples who were with him daily, who heard his teaching, who saw his miraculous works, did not understand. And he was trying to help them to understand that when he entered into Jerusalem, there is an element of what he was doing that would represent his royalty, his, his kingship. But there were steps to undergo before it reached that point. He would be acclaimed as king, but people did not really understand the nature of his kingdom, and they misunderstood or simply did not understand the reason that he had made his way to Jerusalem. And he's repeatedly trying to to convey this understanding to his disciples. And he's doing that again here in Luke chapter 18. Look with me what Luke records in Luke 18, starting with verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. It's interesting, isn't it, that Luke repeats the same idea three times, emphasizing their lack of understanding. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, even those who were closest to him. In fact, if you look at chapter 19, verse 11, it says, As they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So that was the general understanding of the people who heard and saw Jesus, that his kingdom was going to to happen immediately. So he's trying to give them this understanding and yet knowing that they do not understand. Now, we have an advantage because we have the written scriptures, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the, the teaching of the Word of God, and we, we can understand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about what it is that we can understand. And first of all, we can understand about these events that led to and culminated in Jesus' death on the cross. First of all, the sovereign purpose of Jesus' crucifixion. The sovereign purpose of Jesus' crucifixion. Notice in verse 31, uh, he says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. The word accomplished means to be brought to completion. It can refer to a goal that is achieved or a purpose that comes to fruition So what Jesus was saying was not just these are the the events that will happen. 
He wasn't just giving a factual report, even, even though it was a prediction. He was, he was referring to the fact that there was a purpose behind it all that would be achieved and brought to completion. He was moving toward a goal. So when I say the sovereign purpose of Jesus' crucifixion, I, I mean that there was somebody in a position of authority. There was one in control, guiding these events to fulfill a predetermined plan. And, of course, we're referring to to God. A couple of ideas about the sovereign purpose of Jesus' crucifixion. First of all, it had been previously revealed. And he says, these are written by the prophets. The Old Testament contains numerous prophecies about the deliverer who would come. And these prophecies do describe a king, a conquering king, who would deliver them. But these prophecies also lay out the idea that he would be a suffering servant. So God had a plan, but his plan was not just for winning the war of resistance against himself. His plan was not just to to make sure that good won out over evil or to right all the wrongs. His plan was, yes, to establish his reign and to to rightfully claim glory due to his name, but that plan included restoring lost sinners to himself. And God is the one who made this plan known. Jesus says he he did this by the prophets, literally that could say through the prophets, and it's a similar idea, but the idea is that they were his channels. They were the channels of God sending this message, declaring his purpose for Christ's coming and relaying it to us. I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Of course, there are many Old Testament prophecies of the one who would suffer. And that he would not suffer simply as a victim of a political process or um, religious zealots, fanatics. But that he would suffer for a specific purpose, a sovereign purpose. Look with me at Isaiah 53, and these are, if you know the Lord and, and you appreciate what God has done for you, these are treasured words. And as I read, let me highlight this idea of God's purpose. Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now this is talking about the one who would one day come. Isaiah is talking in the present tense and then somewhat future tense, even the past tense a little bit, because it's a prophecy and these things are sure to come to pass. Verse 3, he is despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him and he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And now it becomes more plain. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, if you're a believer, this is dear to you, isn't it? And this represents what Jesus Christ did in your behalf. And it reflects, Isaiah the prophet was, was conveying that this deliverer who would come would suffer. And his suffering would be for a very specific purpose. And that purpose would be to actually take upon himself the guilt and the shame, not of his own wrongs, but of those that everybody else has committed. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And listen to the prophecies and listen to the the intricate detail that Isaiah gives. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He... I think referring to the Father, shall see the labor, the agony of his, the Savior's soul, and be satisfied. That's propitiation, the wrath of God satisfied. By his knowledge, or that could be translated by the knowledge of him, meaning those who know him. So so by knowing him, God says, my righteous servant shall justify many. There's justification. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And you can hear the the language of substitution, can't you? In this beautiful passage of Scripture. Now we'll go back to our New Testaments and we'll, we'll land back here in Luke chapter 18. But while you're going back there, let me remind us of what Peter himself declared. Peter, at the, the time when he began preaching the gospel with power before the throngs of people there in Jerusalem, and, and he declared God's sovereign purpose for the crucifixion of Christ. And Peter said in Acts 2.23, him being delivered... And that's an important word as well. That carries a lot of significance. And you even see that in Luke chapter 18. Jesus would be delivered, handed over, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So Peter is declaring this was God's plan. This was God's purpose all along. He says, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. God in his sovereignty orchestrated so that the, the sinful, hateful actions of mankind would actually accomplish his purpose and his predetermined plan, his sovereign purpose of having his own son crucified for our sins. And John, the apostle, identifies Christ in Revelation 13.8 as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So his crucifixion as the lamb of God, we would even say the Passover lamb, was designed by God, revealed by God, and enacted by God to fulfill his sovereign purpose. So so the 
sovereign purpose of Jesus' crucifixion was previously revealed, but it was also completely fulfilled. And we see this in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus says in verse 31, all these things, all the things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. The, the hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, especially related to his crucifixion, would be fulfilled. And many were fulfilled on the day of his crucifixion. I have here a list, pages stapled together, of 28 prophecies, 28, fulfilled on the crucifixion day. Would you like to hear a few? Good. The serpent would bruise the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, that happened. The Messiah would be cut off, Daniel says, but not for himself. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, Psalm 41, 9. A man, my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Christ would be forsaken by his disciples, Zechariah said. Strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, Zechariah 13, 7. Zechariah also referred to the price of Christ's betrayal being 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11, verse 12. Isaiah prophesied, as we just read, that Christ would be sacrificed as the Lamb of God, and that coincided with the Passover feast. So the Passover lamb brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah also prophesied in Isaiah 50 that Jesus would be scourged and mocked. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheek to those who plucked off the hair. The fact that Jesus' body would be mutilated was prophesied by Isaiah His body shall be disfigured, his form beyond the sons of men, in chapter 52. Isaiah also prophesied that Jesus would not defend himself in what we just read. He would be silent. He would not open his mouth in defense of himself. David prophesied that his hand and his feet would be pierced. If you want to read a passage of scripture this week that will vividly portray for you, in a profound way, the crucifixion of Christ, read Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and there are numerous prophecies in there, specific references, kind of like Isaiah 53, to the crucifixion of Christ. He says, they have pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm 22, verse 16. They divide my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture, Psalm 22, 18. In another psalm, David prophesied they would give him vinegar to drink. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar, Psalm 69, verse 21. David even prophesied, The words reflecting the agony of Christ at the peak of his suffering in Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Zechariah also prophesies a piercing, which may refer to him being pierced with a a spear. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Interestingly, in Psalm 22, and I discovered this when I studied Psalm 22 out for the first time, and I realized there's a phrase in Psalm 22 that is translated something like, he has done this. And in the Hebrew, it can actually be translated something like, it is finished. So there in Psalm 22, verse 31, it is finished. So Jesus' last words. And then Psalm 34, 20, and also we read in Isaiah 53, his burial in the tomb of a rich man. Those are a few. That is a sampling. Those are prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. Our sovereign God 
planned and predicted and ensured the once-for-all sacrifice for sins accomplished by his son. And, and Jesus, as, as a man, could not have orchestrated all of these events and, and dictated to all these people what they would do. Certainly God can do that, but Jesus as a human being could not be clever enough and have enough influence to coordinate all of this to happen as the prophets described. It had to be a miracle, a work of God. And that's exactly what God did. He arranged it all to fulfill his sovereign purpose, which is to glorify himself, rightfully so, by redeeming for himself a people who were formerly under the curse and condemnation of sin and bringing them into his kingdom and giving them eternal life. And isn't it amazing that God's sovereign purpose includes you and me? The God of the universe, the creator of it all, the one who is in control, the all-powerful one, the holy one, Yes, deserves all glory, but the problem is we are incapable of giving him the glory he deserves, and we fall short of his glory, but he has made a way for him to be glorified in us and for us to be restored to him through the crucifixion of his own son, and it fulfills his purpose. Now, because of that being God's sovereign purpose, bringing glory to himself and redeeming lost sinners to himself, He has to deal with the problem of sin, doesn't he? And we've touched on this, but let's look further into it because that's exactly what Jesus Christ is describing here as we talk about understanding the crucifixion of Christ. We also need to understand the unjust suffering of Jesus' crucifixion. And and that implies the fact that he not only suffered, but there was something behind there was there was a significance to it and the fact that he did not deserve it so let's understand that he he's talking in the third person here in Luke 18 but he we know he's talking about himself he calls himself the son of man Jesus is the son of God he is fully God but he became a man he identified with humanity became a member of the human race and now as a man Not as God who somehow insulated himself from the pain and the torment and the shame and death. No, he didn't do that. He experienced all of this in the same kind of body with the same kind of nervous system and the same kind of of thought processes and emotions that you and I would have as the Son of Man. He will be delivered, verse 32, to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and insulted, and spit on, and they will scourge him and kill him. So these verses describe the incredible suffering that Jesus Christ would experience as a man. He was delivered to the Gentiles. And the word delivered, again, has significance. It is the idea of being handed over in a legal sense, taken into custody. So here, Jesus, the Son of God, relinquished his control over his destiny, didn't he? And now he places himself, the Son of God, into the hands of the Roman government for them to to do as they please with him. He was mocked. Glance with me a few pages over, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 63. 
Luke twenty two sixty three. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Who are these people? These are his own people. He came to his own. They received him not. They rejected him. They mocked him. They berated him. They demeaned him. They degraded him. So at the Jewish hearing, he was mocked. Look at chapter 23, verse 11. Chapter 23, verse 11. He was sent over to Herod. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. So here in Luke 23, 11, we find one of the higher representatives in the Roman government, as well as these rough Roman soldiers mocking him, abusing him. Then look at chapter 23. Uh, Verse 35, chapter 23, verse 35. Verse 35 says, And the people looking on, but even the rulers with them, sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. So he was mocked at the Jewish hearing. He was mocked by Herod and the Roman soldiers. He was mocked on the cross. And Peter, Jesus went on to say in, in Luke 18 that he was, he was insulted and spit on. And these are all ways of demeaning a human being. Yes, there was physical torture. But, but he was humiliated. We are hearing of atrocities right now in Ukraine. And those are not just acts of violence. Those are acts intended to demean people to subjugate them, to humiliate them as a people. It is always astounding what human beings are capable of, isn't it? And how cruel, wicked men can be. Jesus was treated with utter contempt. And in doing so, he bore shame. He was humiliated and he bore shame that he did not deserve. When you and I feel shame, usually we deserve to feel that way. We are ashamed of our sin. We feel guilt, and there is a shame that's associated with that. And Jesus was put to shame, but did not deserve that. Back in Luke 18, he says, they will scourge him. And of course, that little phrase contains so much agony. He was not only humiliated, he was tortured. And this is referring to the Roman flogging. And there were various degrees of punishment that the Romans would give out for minor offenses, more serious offenses. There was one that was enacted in the case of a capital crime worthy of death, in which the victim was tied to a post, his clothes torn off, and a whip was used on him that was designed to not only inflict pain, but rip his body open. And that's probably what the Roman soldiers did to Jesus. Amazingly, he knew he would undergo this torture when he went to Jerusalem, but he went anyway. And he bore the shame of sin, and he bore suffering for sin. Undeserved. And then he says in verse 33, and they will kill him, speaking of himself. Remember, Jesus was innocent of any sin. He did not commit any crime. 
God himself had declared him holy. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was declared not guilty by the Roman government. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. So why did he suffer? Why was he put to death? And the answer is to bear the penalty of sin, not his own. Peter answers the question for us in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. So he is the Holy One. He is the Innocent One. And he suffered as a substitute for those who are unholy, those who are guilty, and that's you and me. And Peter goes on to say, That he might bring us to God. There's the purpose. To reconcile us to our God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So he bore the shame of our sin. He endured the suffering of our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. And it's, of course, of utmost importance for us to understand this, as well as to help others understand these things as well. So what is there to understand about Jesus' crucifixion? The sovereign purpose his unjust suffering, and then one more truth, and that is the certain outcome of Jesus' crucifixion. He went on to say in Luke 18, the second part of verse 33, and the third day he will rise again. Anybody could make that claim. Any of us could say, yep, I'm going to die, but you'll see me again. Uh, I'm not feeling so well. Um, I don't think this is going to turn out the way I had hoped. I'm pretty sick. I think I'm going to die. But I'm pretty sure in a few days you'll see me walking around again. I'll probably see you at Walmart or someplace. Because I'll be up and around. Don't worry. It'll be okay. Any of us could say that, right? But that would either be a morbid sense of humor or we're a little bit off, right? A little bit off. Well, here was a man who said, they're going to kill me but I'm not going to stay dead. And we'll talk about that next Sunday, won't we? And that will be a blessing. Look at verse 34 with me again. He says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, there was some reason that they just didn't get it. But we also understand from the way this is described is that they couldn't totally get it. It was actually hidden from them. Their eyes were not fully open to what was going on. Jesus kept explaining it to them and stating it to them, but they were limited. There was a blindness there. But we know, don't we, that people grow in their understanding. People's eyes can be opened. When did this happen? Well, look at Luke 24. After the crucifixion, not long after Jesus' resurrection, a couple of disciples were taking a walk to a village called Emmaus, a little ways outside Jerusalem. And as they were walking, they were talking about this Jesus and what had happened and how he had been snatched away, all of those events. And interestingly, somebody else comes alongside them, doesn't he? 
Look at how Luke describes it in Luke 24, starting in verse 25. Luke 24, 25. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that they that he would have gone farther, but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread and blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. I'll stop for a second. Knowing what we know, it's very likely that that experience was familiar to them, wasn't it? They had done this before. They had been with this this figure, this person before. And even though there was a difference, there was still a resemblance. So the recognition was beginning to grow. And their eyes were open, verse 31 says. And they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. And again, this is in the, the passive voice. Their eyes were opened. They didn't arrive at this through research. They didn't put it together with reasoning. No, something happened to them that opened their eyes. So as Jesus displayed himself to them, the crucified and risen Lord, and as he engaged with them personally, even as he broke bread with them, then God intervened. God acted upon them, and he opened their eyes, and they knew him. God enabled them to see Jesus for who he was. And the same needs to be true for you and for me. And I'm thinking there are probably some people here, by God's grace, I'm one of those, when there came a moment that I understood who Jesus is. You don't have to be too smart. I was eight years old when my friend asked me if I had ever accepted Jesus as my Savior, and he began to share the gospel with me, and God opened my eyes, and I trusted Jesus to save me. It can certainly be later on in life. But that moment when, when you truly understand who Jesus is and, and what he did for you is your opportunity to believe in him. And, and when you believe in him, something else happens. Your eyes begin to open even further. And your understanding of who Jesus is and the blessings that are yours because he is your Lord and Savior begin to grow. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, so, so when God opens your eyes to understand who Jesus is for the first time as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Savior who died in your place and rose again and bore the, the, the shame and the suffering and the penalty for your sins and you trust in Jesus to save you, God opens your mind and your heart to him and you trust him and that's just the beginning of a lifetime of knowing him and growing in your understanding of him and enjoying his blessings and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that possible. He acts on you. He works in you to make that possible. A few things that this need for understanding 
helps us to think about. One is, might be one of you here today, and you don't understand yet. It's still information. It's still kind of a story. Maybe it's one that you've learned pretty well, but it's not you. You haven't really understood and embraced Jesus to be your Savior. And if you still don't quite understand that, ask for help. Start with God. God, would you help me understand this better? I think it's important, and I know the facts about Jesus, but I want that deep understanding. I want to know what that means for me. And then ask a Christian to help you. Ask a friend, ask a parent, ask a brother or sister and just say, hey, I'm trying to understand this better. Would you help me? Maybe you have specific questions about it. If you're just now understanding it, somebody here, accept, accept and trust what Jesus did for you. Believe what the scriptures say. Jesus died for your sins and, and rose again and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you call on him, you trust in him, and he will save you. He is your savior. And then I do think it's important for us to think about people that we know. Do you know someone who needs to understand who Jesus is and the crucifixion of Christ? Do you know someone? A neighbor? Somebody you work with, go to school with? Somebody you've crossed paths with in the community? Maybe that you meet? around the region of our church here, the neighborhood of our church. And next Sunday is a wonderful opportunity to say to somebody, hey, you want to learn more about who Jesus is and this whole thing about his death and the resurrection? Uh, We're going to be talking about that, 9.30 on a Sunday morning, next Sunday. I'd be glad to meet you there, and I'll sit with you, and we can just listen And I think it might help your understanding of that. And I'll promise you that I'll do the best I can to explain it, especially the resurrection of Christ, and to share these truths of the gospel. And I can say with certainty that the Holy Spirit will be here, and he will be actively working people's hearts. And if anybody can come to Christ, it's not because of what you and I do by inviting, or even what I can do by doing my best to preach it, But as people hear the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of convicting and drawing and regenerating so that they'll be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? So I encourage you. And that's why I've I've invited and and you I think you all here at Northridge know that we are coordinating with Baptist Church Blanters and that Ankeny Baptist Church is also partnering with them and with us to to help us grow as a church. And I don't know. Maybe there will be less people here next Sunday morning than are here this morning. I don't know. Maybe half of you will be sick or go out of town to visit your relatives. I don't know. But maybe one person will walk in those doors who's never been here before or maybe has not been here in a while. By the way, I think that's a good action plan as well. I'm guessing there are some people that over the past year, three years, five years, have drifted away from fellowshipping with, with this group here at Northridge and Maybe they haven't landed someplace else. Maybe they don't have a church family, and you would just want to reach out to them and say, hey, I know it's been a long time, but uh, come on back. Love to see you on Easter Sunday. I'll sit with you. We can go to lunch. 
I guess Reverend Brunch here. You can come to brunch. There you go. You can come to brunch. So, so again, the idea is that we can pray, we can be ready to preach, share the gospel. Sometimes people are open to hearing, even attending a new place on Easter Sunday. And I've asked friends from Ankeny Baptist to come and help us just to, just to talk to people, just to help welcome people, help them know where to come in off the sidewalk and find the right door and be a smiling, friendly face, and just so that we can all team together and engage in what God might do. And uh, if nothing else, we'll celebrate the Lord's resurrection together here, won't we? But we want to be ready um, for those who may come. If you are a believer, you can take great assurance from God's sovereign purpose, can't you? He had a plan for Jesus, and his plan includes the outworking of his will in your life, doesn't it? You can be reminded of God's great love for you when you think about his suffering. Paul said, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's our good God. And that should stir in us a greater love, a more intense love, a more obedient love, a more wholehearted love for him, should it not? And Jesus instituted into the life of the church a way to remember his death, the Lord's Supper. And we are going to uh, sing together and then have the Lord's Supper together. May we, as we break bread together, have our eyes opened more and more to understand all that God has done for us through the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. Let's sing together and our men will prepare to serve.